this is Tom Fox. I'm the Compliance Evangelist, and I'd like to welcome you to episode 94 of This Week in FCPA for the week ending March 16, 2018, the March Madness edition. This Week in FCPA is sponsored by Affiliated Monitors. Founded in 2004, Affiliated Monitors provides professional, independent integrity monitoring, ethics, and compliance assessments nationally and internationally across almost all industries. With its knowledge of effective ethics and compliance programs and cultures, Affiliated Monitors is respected for its work as the compliance monitor on matters ranging from multinational corporations to small and mid-sized companies and even individuals. Having served in over 600 monitorships, no one has more experience as an independent monitor than the team at Affiliated Monitors. For more information on how an independent monitor, monitor can help improve your company's ethics and compliance programs, visit our sponsor, Affiliated Monitors, at their website, www.affiliatedmonitors.com. March Madness is truly upon us as we have the first number 16 seed knocking off a number one seed. In the midst of this true madness, Jay Rosen and I take a look at some of the week's top compliance and ethics stories. <clears throat> number one, obviously March Madness and corruption in NCAA basketball. We take a look at comments by uh, former FCPA unit head Chuck DeRoss that self-reporting is, quote, probably not worth it, end quote. We consider the SEC enforcement action against Elizabeth Holmes and Theranos for her engagement in a massive years-long fraud. We take a look at some of the compliance lessons to be learned from the Novartis anti-corruption, or perhaps we should say corruption journey that Jacqueline Jagger reported on in Compliance Week. We consider the first DPA granted under the new French anti-corruption law, Sapondu. Uh, SFO David Green pushes back on the myth that DPAs are sweetheart deals in a piece in the FCPA blog. We consider whether corporate monitors will continue to exist in FCPA enforcement actions and round out with uh, highlights from the Trace Global Enforcement Report. I uh, talk about the new, uh, exciting new uh, podcast I'm premiering on Tuesday, Innovation and Compliance. I hope you will check it out. It will be available on the FCPA Compliance Report, iTunes, Libsyn, and YouTube. My new book, The Complete Compliance Handbook, will be published in April by Compliance Week. It's available for pre-sale on my website. Jonathan Armstrong, well-known data privacy and data security uh, practitioner, will be in Houston on April 10th to put on a half-day GDP workshop. You can register and find out more information at the Greater Houston and Business and Ethics Roundtable website. This is Tom Fox. This Week in FCPA is a part of the Compliance Podcast Network. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox, the Compliance Evangelist, back with my colleague, Jay Rosen, for another episode of This Week in FCPA. This is the March Madness edition. And, Jay, we really have some madness going on because last night... The, we had the first number 16 seed upset a number one seed as UVA went down. So uh, madness is here, and we had some, uh, some madness this week. So why don't we just jump right into it? Yeah, and the first bit of March madness comes from a, a little piece you wrote for uh, Compliance Week. Why don't you uh, tell us about March madness and corruption? So I think probably everyone in the compliance world is aware of the um, allegations of systemic corruption around NCAA basketball. We had a number of arrests uh, earlier this year by the uh, Department of Justice. 
uh, involving uh, pay to play to monies paid to high school students to direct them to certain universities. Uh, one coach was um, uh, video, excuse me, audio taped uh, offering up to $100,000. There have been uh, allegations of that amount being offered uh, by other uh, to others, rather. Um, so uh, really systemic corruption at a level of the coaches, which we had not previously seen. Uh, apparel makers uh, have been dragged into this. They're apparently the uh, alleged to be the funding mechanisms. And Jay, I know you're shocked, just shocked, to actually hear that um, uh, uh, amateurism and college athletes would be paid. But uh, this really takes um, the uh, pay-to-play to a whole new level. The uh, NCAA, uh, being the spineless worms that they are, uh, have said, well, it's, uh, we're going to investigate the student-athletes, and we'll discipline anyone who took money. Of course, uh, what they've neglected to tell us is that uh, this year alone, they took in over $1 billion in revenues from basketball, largely, of course, from television revenues, and that uh, all of the teams in this year's tournament who are alleged to have players who were paid, uh, they were magically cleared uh, literally within weeks of these allegations coming out. So um, I guess uh, the NCAA proves once again that it truly is the clowns of uh, college athletics. Not only can they they proven they can't investigate, uh, they've now proven that uh, they really have no reason to exist other than to just make money. The uh, uh, interesting thing, I think, is where this may go and clearly, uh, the NCAA actually was pushing back yesterday in advertisements on uh, March Madness games, saying that only 2% of all student-athletes made it to the pros. I suppose if you add in everybody uh, down to the uh, wrestling, lacrosse, and uh, soccer, uh, or fencing teams, that's probably correct. The problem is that um, the colleges are making tons of money on, on these uh, major sports, and they're not compensated, compensating uh, employees, i.e. the student-athletes. So I think it's probably going to presage the end of the NCAA. The NBA, uh, I think, views this as both a problem and an opportunity, and so uh, professional sports may step in and, and uh, create some system so that uh, either players can be paid and or uh, there's not this locked in uh, ridiculous uh, one and done or three and done in the uh, in case of the NFL. But once again, the uh, NCAA pl- proves to be completely uh, um, falling, failing uh, the task in front of them. Um, these arrests were done by the FBI or by the Department of Justice based upon investigations by the uh, FBI. And apparently the NCA had no idea any of this was going on. So uh, I thought it was a great way to introduce March Madness. So for those who, um, who uh, love college basketball, this is, this is our weekend. It's uh, probably the best four days of college basketball you can ever see. So um, uh, I think, uh, I think I still have my final four left as of the second day, but uh, I'm not sure. Um, Jay, we had uh, some interesting comments from uh, our colleague, uh, or at least our friend, Chuck DeRoss. You want to tell us about those? Sure. Uh, we're picking up uh, an article that we're going to link to from uh, Global Investigations Review by Kelly Swanson. And the title is, Former FCPA Unit Chiefs Say Self-Reporting is still probably not worth it. 
So um, at the Emerging Issues in FCPA Enforcement Conference at George Washington University on March 9th, two former heads of the DOJ's FCPA unit, Mark Mendelson and Chuck DeRoss, got together with former chief of the SEC, uh, Cheryl Scarborough, and they discussed the benefits of self-reporting under the DOJ's corporate enforcement policy for foreign bribery cases. While they praised the DOJ for its transparency, in lately releasing policies that offer self-reporting companies a declination, they also agreed that the consequence of voluntarily disclosing misconduct mostly outweighs the benefits. And uh, this is um, Chuck DeRoss speaking, saying, I think the DOJ has tried to provide greater certainty and clarity and a list of criteria, DeRoss said. But boy, in doing that, they have reached the resolution where they take almost all of it uh, parenthetical, the incentives to self-report back, because if you are a company, what you care about is your rep- is your reputation. Uh, and then he further went on to say, the reward is forevermore your name will be tattooed on the DOJ's website as having violated the FCPA and paid disgorgement. So it's a huge disincentive uh, for companies to self-report. And in cases with aggravating circumstances, the potential benefit to self-reporting to the DOJ, as we know, is a 50% reduction off a criminal fine. However, companies that do not self-report can still qualify for 25%. So Duras said the difference between 50% and 25% is not enough to make companies view self-disclosing as favorable. He added that the main criterion that companies should look at when deciding to self-report is if they think the government could find out about their conduct anyway. So it's uh, um, it's very interesting to see people who are on the other side of the table come out. And at the end of the day, uh, you know, over the last several years, we've seen several attempts for the DOJ to really, um, you know, pull pull the curtain aside and show what they are considering when they're offering uh, to give companies uh, a reduction in their fines and trying to incentivize them to self-report. And even though this declination with a disgorgement seems to be uh, a good uh, resolution from a monetary point of view, you've got these three esteemed former enforcers who are saying at the end of the day, it comes down to, do you think we're going to get caught? So um, very interesting comments. What are your thoughts on them, Tom? So um, I guess, Jay, the we, we've heard these types of arguments before, uh, but one thing we had not really heard, or at least um, put right up front, uh, by Chuck DeRoss, is that companies are more concerned about their reputations than the fines and penalties. And that relates to the posting of the company's name on the DOJ website that they received a declination. And I really had not thought that companies had considered uh, reputational damage uh, as a reason not to self-disclose. It really, uh, that seems almost counterintuitive to me. Nevertheless, um, you have to respect Chuck because he's obviously not only the former head of the FCPA unit, but now in private practice represents uh, companies uh, who are in FCPA hot water. So um, I assume that, you know, he's heard that uh, from his clients. The, um, the difficulty or the 
competing considerations are uh, myself and a wide variety of commentators have argued for years, literally, that these declinations need to be made public. All declinations need to be made public. And the declinations that uh, came about under the FCPA pilot program and now under the new FCPA corporate enforcement policy, I think really lend themselves and lead to greater compliance because we now have more information about what the uh, uh, both the company thought in terms of a uh, reasons to self-report, but also, obviously, what the DOJ thought was important in terms of uh, the facts, the cooperation, and the remediation. So um, we seem to uh, kind of be at odds here between or or um, by what company, what may incentivize in companies and what may incentivize the government and what may incentivize the rest of us. So um, an interesting dialogue. Uh, once again, the... Um, the part about uh, company reputation as the driving force in whether or not to self-disclose, I thought uh, was an interesting, if not new fact, certainly uh, brought to the attention uh, a little bit more than uh, we've normally seen in the past. And as we know, whenever Chuck DeRoss speaks, you better listen. So, Tom, why don't you tell us about um, Elizabeth Holmes and how do you say her company? Is it Theranos or Theranos? Well, I say Theranos, but I say hurricane and I say insurance. That's just the way okay. us Southerners talk. So Theranos uh, is uh, Theranos. And um, first, I'd like to note the passing of Stephen Hawking, uh, one of the greatest scientific minds, certainly of uh, the 20th century, and perhaps the greatest, uh, well, uh, I don't know if you consider him greater than Richard Feynman, but uh, right up there with Richard Feynman in uh, in my eyes. So uh, tip of the hat to Stephen Hawking's and not only the greatness of his mind, Jay, but the greatness of what he did with the horrible disability he developed in the 20s, which was Lou Gehrig's disease. And I read several articles that talked about his um, disability and his public, uh, very public uh, display of overcoming his disabilities may be an even greater uh, lasting legacy. So uh, I wanted to to give that shout out to Stephen Hawking and note that. But we had a uh, extraordinary, and, and I can't emphasize that word enough, extraordinary SEC complaint agreed to by Elizabeth Holmes, founder of Theranos, where she agreed to a civil penalty of $500,000, returned almost 19 million shares of stock to the company and agreed to a 10-year ban and holding uh, office in a publicly traded company. Uh, I have read the complaint. Uh, she did not uh, admit or deny, but the facts stated in that complaint were uh, one of the great frauds of all time, uh, really uh, executed on the very highest level, involving the highest um, most sophisticated investors in the United States, not necessarily VC investors, nevertheless, a wide variety of investors up to, including people like Rupert Murdoch. Um, <clears throat> Theranos was the company that was going to uh, revolutionize uh, blood testing by literally taking a pinprick of blood and being able to run uh, some 300 diagnostic tests. It turned out that uh, that was just wishful thinking on the part of Elizabeth Holmes, but the part that got her in trouble was when she uh, said, not only can we do it, but we will do it, and we have done it, and then proceeded to uh, bait and switch uh, multiple persons and parties around um, demonstrations. Um, 
yesterday. I think uh, <clears throat> I was uh, privileged to be a part of a group uh, put together by Jason Meyer called Ethics Madness 2, where we uh, live blogged about uh, compliance and ethics during uh, the Friday, first Friday of March Madness. And Matt Kelly had a, a good point that we he and I certainly agreed on, and he saw it as a failure of corporate governance as well because the uh, board of directors uh, really was uh, completely absent in this case. Uh, there was some debate amongst us of whether she should have gone to jail for this. Um, and I think that uh, certainly a criminal complaint could have been issued, but by her agreeing to, with really no noise, uh, literally since last summer, from her about her innocence and how that uh, Theranos was going to fight this, uh, really demonstrated that she understood she uh, she was in deep, deep trouble. And this is uh, really as catastrophic or as uh, uh, all-encompassing a civil penalty as I believe I've uh, really ever seen. So uh, really a sad end to uh, someone who uh, had a vision, uh, tried to execute on that vision, but at the end of the day, uh, defrauded investors um, when she took their money to, to make this vision happen. So I don't know how... This resonates uh, out from in your part of the world. I'm going to assign you the uh, Silicon Valley opinion and, and commentary simply because you're in California, although I recognize there's not only a, a physical distance but a psychological distance between Los Angeles and Silicon Valley. So did you have any other thoughts? I, I just would like to share the quote from uh, Gina Choi. Uh, director of the SCC's regional office in San Francisco, and uh, this the, the quote is, the Therano story is an important lesson for Silicon Valley. Innovators who seek to revolutionize and disrupt an industry must tell investors the truth about what their technology can do today, not just what they hope it might do in someday. And kind of that immediately brings up Tesla, in my mind, that uh, no one can deny that Elon Musk is definitely a true disruptor, but uh, the the number of production vehicles that are coming out from um, Tesla are just pale when uh, compared to the numbers that he's been guaranteeing shareholders. So uh, I agree with you that this is uh, definitely a very important ruling and um, I, I would say, you know, a lot of our stories come back to truth, right? What is the truth? What are you guaranteeing your shareholders or what are you guaranteeing to the public? And if there's a disconnect there, it's, it's, it's a huge uh, problem for both you, your company, and your reputation. Um, Tom, your colleague Jacqueline Jager at Compliance Week uh, took a, a shot at distilling compliance lessons from Novartis. Uh, what did she have to say? So really the um, headline, Jay, I thought it was going to be a sort of a lessons learned or how to, but it's much more than that. And, and Jacqueline's a great writer and I commend this article to everyone. And um, Novartis may be in some serious trouble, uh, not only for having engaged and allegedly engaged in bribery and corruption, but really their entire attitude towards it. And the first half of Jacqueline's article really quotes from and cites to a recent board meeting, uh, the excuse me, shareholder, shareholders uh, annual meeting 
where uh, the uh, CEO of the company said, uh, well, we're not sure that uh, there was bribery and corruption. And, and uh, even though the, we're under investigation uh, in Greece for paying kickbacks to more than 4,000 do- uh, doctors and government officials in exchange for promotion of Novartis drugs, that uh, we're really not sure anything bad has happened. And we're just going to have to see. Of course, we don't. Uh, he, he went on to say we don't really um, – we don't uh, approve of bribery and corruption, but we're going to let this investigation play out before we uh, really make any admissions or uh, do anything uh, drastic. And that sort of attitude, uh, considering that Novartis had previously paid a $390 million fine, I think in 2015, really speaks of an attitude which does not seem to put uh, doing business ethically and in compliance at the forefront. So um, I know this this may tie into some of the points uh some points you have a little bit later in another story on GIR on recidivism and how that might relate to monitorships. But I will have to say I was um, somewhat disjointed by the attitude of uh, Novartis management that uh, they don't seem to think they have a, a problem yet. Uh, they're going to look at it, but they, they don't think they have a problem yet. But she did add maybe, some. Maybe they're, maybe they're using the Wells Fargo playbook. And it always uh, works well when you uh, testify in front of the government and speak to that. Well, that's true, and indeed, and uh, Wells Fargo is a gift that keeps on giving. On the front page of today's Wall Street Journal was yet another investigation that has opened up around Wells Fargo. But um, uh, Jacqueline did go through and lay out some of the uh, actions which have been taken by uh, Novartis, which included the uh, separation of the company's uh, compliance program from its legal function, uh, there's a new policy for interacting with uh, healthcare um, uh, professionals and payment for uh, sponsorship of physicians to conferences. There's new professional practices policies. There is uh, an enhanced anti-bribery compliance program specifically around third parties and their due diligence process. And the company is uh, uh, disciplining people that uh, they feel may have violated some of these. So, um, you know, Tactically, they seem to be moving towards the right um, direction, but strategically, these comments by literally the uh, CEO and chairman of the board really portend, uh, I think, an attitude uh, where compliance is uh, not in the top five or maybe even the top ten of uh, the directions a company wants to go. Last thing I'll say is I just really love the uh, dramatic open, the way that – Jacqueline wrote it, and it's, it was very cinematic. So uh, I really see this guy, you know, in a hotel, in the Hilton Hotel in Greece, getting ready to uh, step out on the balcony and being talked back from the edge and saying, they will not put me onto me all the sins of my company. So good stuff. Um, next up, we're going to take a look at the first French DPAs for corruption offenses. And on March 5th of this year, French prosecutors published two judicial conventions of public interest, and the acronym for that in French is CJIP, or French DPAs, and they've been approved by the president of the High Court of Nanterre on February 23rd, and the CJPs are entered into between prosecutors and two subcontractors to the state-owned utility EDF. And the companies are um, probably butcher their names, SAS K for Warner, which they're uh, abbreviating as KW, and SAS Set Environment, SET. And they allege that these companies had 
acceded to solicitations to pay bribes to EDF, to a procurement manager, and that the behavior amounted to corruption by them on on individual charged with public service. Uh, These are the first to be concluded in respect to corruption offenses, and helpfully to the practitioner, they provide detail on the financial incentive of entering into a French DPA and also uh, clarify that the cooperation and remediation can be uh, significant. So uh, this is, again, uh, similar to the trend that we're seeing sweeping across uh, globally, whether it's DPAs being picked up in uh, in the UK, in Australia, in uh, Asia Pacific. We really see a trend of this happening. And um, when you can go through the article, you can learn a little bit about the background of the two companies. But, um, you know, the authors who are um, some attorneys from Debevoice asked the question that despite providing welcome clarifications on the application of the CJIP regime, the KW and the SET CJIPs failed to address the issue of most concern to companies facing corruption issues in France. What are the criteria used by authorities to decide whether to offer the company to include a French DPA? And from the three uh, French DPAs that have been concluded to date, it would appear that neither self-reporting nor cooperation is a prerequisite, but they do serve as mitigating factors. So, um, you know, one thing that I think uh, for France to catch up to where we are is to um, start being uh, a little bit more transparent uh, in terms of what will get you the uh, um, the DPA. One other point that I thought that was interesting is in addition to the financial penalties that were 30,000 euros in compensation to EDF, both KW and SET will be subject to uh, supervised monitorships ranging from 18, uh, 18 and 24 months respectively. And here's the interesting part. The costs borne by the companies monitored are capped at 290,000 euros for KW and 200,000 euros for SAT. So um, the express objective of the monitorship is to ensure compliance of existing anti-corruption programs with obligatory requirements for anti-corruption programs set out in SAP and so while they include the um, monitorships, uh, the length uh, are somewhat uh, less than what we do here in the U.S. And to cap those at 290 and 200,000 euros seems like um, a very low amount. Any thoughts on that from your perspective, Tom? Um, yeah, I guess on the uh, the dollar or euro amount, Jay, uh, that doesn't really offend me uh, because you're looking at basically – uh, for um, EDF or for KW, rather, uh, that's probably about $450,000 for 18 months' work. And for SET, that's about 300000 for 24 months' work. But uh, it's the subsidiary, or excuse me, the contractor, subcontractor. So um, uh, coming from the corporate world, uh, once you know your cost, uh, that's really what you want to know. And as I, uh, when I, when I do consulting or legal work, I t- tend to do fixed fee. So um, I'm a big fan of that. Uh, so no, it doesn't offend me that uh, those amounts are set what they are. Uh, once you know what your uh, costs are going to be or your compensation is going to be, I think uh, you know you do your work around that. So um, 
the uh, I guess the uh, the thing that really struck me was that there was still a fair amount that's unclear and unsettled under the French DPA regime. And uh, I think you uh, laid this out, but the uh, Ministry of uh, Justice Circular provided to prosecutors in January of this year, um, or rather uh, in March of this year, said that prosecutors should take into account the company's antecedents, which uh, means um, are they a recidivist? We'll talk about that in a minute in the context of uh, monitorships, but also whether it uh, self-disclosed the relevant facts and whether it cooperated. It really leaves out the issue of uh remediation. So um, I think this is going to be a work in progress, but certainly it's a welcome work in progress. Yeah, I think it totally is a step in the right direction. Uh, Why don't you tell us about um, uh, Gareth Thomas' article about David Green and uh, what UK GPAs aren't? So, Jay, just as you're as a you are a, a recovering screenwriter and really a movie guy, I'm really a, a writer and a word guy. Um, the the word on the page, not the verbal word. So, I was extraordinarily pleased uh, when David Green used the word Damascene conversation. Um, now, I'm going to give you a pass on what that means because what it means is it is uh, comes from uh, Saul, who became Saint Paul. Uh, conversion to Christianity on the road to Damascus. And a Damascene conversion is when you have a sudden, complete change in, in your beliefs. And David Green actually used that word or that term in a speech. So kudos to David Green and Damascene conversions or con- uh, conversions. So I'm going to incorporate that into my repertoire going forward. Um, he gave some, I thought, really interesting remarks um, around that and certainly um Damascene conversions was a part of it Uh, under the uh, UK Bribery Act and uh, deferred prosecution agreements with the Serious Fraud Office. He said the one and only um, uh, way to uh, even qualify for a DPA was to self-disclose. It is, if you don't self-report, it's that's the essential precondition of a DPA. And Jay, why, why I found that either interesting or troubling was, if you'll recall, the largest uh, serious fraud office settlement of a UK Bribery Act case ever was Rolls-Royce. Rolls-Royce received a deferred prosecution agreement. Rolls-Royce did not self-disclose. So um, I understand why he would want to say that Damascene conversions uh, are not acceptable, and that self-reporting is and will remain an essential condition precondition of a DPA. But if you're going to say that, you really have to put it into practice. So um, I thought that was uh, interesting. But great term, great use of a term. Uh, everybody should use that. I hope you don't, or you do, have Damascene uh, conversions, whichever way you want to <laughs> go with it. Um, the other thing was that he really emphasized um, that DPAs are not, um, in his mind, cozy relationships, that um, uh, DPAs are taken very seriously, and that uh, even with a DPA, senior executives will still be at risk uh, under uh, criminal prosecution uh, under the UK Bribery Act. So um, I really took this as a, at least the report of it as a pretty strident um statement by the uh, the SFO director. What were your thoughts? 
Yeah, uh, I got to spend some time with David a couple of weeks ago in San Diego at the ABA White Collar Crime, and he's um, he's a very interesting chap, and uh, you know he he really does uh, I think come out on the law and order side. And another thing that's uh, you know a key differentiator between our DPAs and those uh, promulgated in England are that they must be argued before and approved by a judge. So not only is it a matter of crafting that statement and negotiating, but a judge can come in and, and say, you know, that this is uh, too light a slap on the wrist or that this is, uh, I guess, you know, too heavy an enforcement. So um, David uh, really believes in, in the mission of what the SFO is doing. Uh, I think this is, you know, clearly the mindset that he's purveying, and it'll be uh, interesting, interesting to see if this continues because his term is um, almost up. And as he uh, usually uh, adds in every news article, and I don't know why it's not in here, but he said he's, uh, you know, going to be putting himself on the market and seeing where he can uh, find uh, future employment, not in the government. So uh, I think I think he's a great guy. Uh, I, I like what he's doing there. And as I said, uh, we'll have to see what's coming next. Um, last thing that you saved for me, since it uh, falls right in my sweet spot, uh, we have an article from Adam uh, Dobrik over at uh, Global Investigations Just Anti-Corruption. And U.S. officials talk about how to avoid a monitor. So, um the DOJ's Sally Malloy got together with the SEC's Melissa Hodgman and had a discussion with Ernst & Young's Kathleen McGovern in D.C. on March 15th at the Georgetown University Law Center's Corporate Counsel Institute. And officials from both the DOJ and SEC say that they declined to impose monitors on companies that they trust. Sally Malloy went on to say, it doesn't make a lot of sense to me to impose a monitor where the company has affirmably come to you and reported something. And then she continued to say that corporate settlements without a monitor, uh, the department has still imposed a self-reporting obligation on companies to provide updates on compliance enhancements and any possible problems possible problems. So they're ultimately at the end, they're looking for companies and whether we can trust the company to self-report. So if you are in a position where you have actually uh, been contrite, you have uh, cooperated and put yourself in a position that you have a trustworthy relationship with the DOJ and the SEC, they're not going to let you uh, not have reporting obligations, but they're going to allow you to self-report. And uh, on the face of that, it might seem that that is not such a great deal for companies that provide monitorship services like affiliated monitors. But one of the trends that we're seeing uh, is this year we are having a lot of potential clients reach out to us in advance of having any type of an issue and wanting to run a proactive assessment, which is good not only um, if you have an, a chance where you're called in front of the DOJ or the SEC, but by running a proactive assessment, you have an opportunity to have an independent party come in and take a look at how well your uh, 
controls and procedures are working and whether there may be any adjustments that you can make to uh, have the best of breed program. So uh, I, I choose to re read this article in a positive sense, talking about how, um, you know, how you build trust. And if you come in from a very proactive position, you can get a better um, outcome with the uh, DOJ and the SEC. Your thoughts, Tom? So a couple of uh, thoughts, Jay. First of all, I was a little surprised uh, by the statement of um, Sally Malloy that it all turns on self-disclosure. Now, I understand that is a basic requirement, the basic requirement, under the uh, pilot, or was under the pilot program and under the new FCPA corporate enforcement policy to receive a declination to self-report. But uh, self-reporting is only one part of the calculus that goes uh, should go into a decision of monitorship. And as you point out, it's the actions of the company, not what they say, but what they do. So if you take uh, a few steps back to consider some of the very egregious FCPA uh, violations, which became enforcement actions before the pilot program, and that myself and perhaps others scratched their heads, and we couldn't understand either why the fine was what we thought was so low and or why there was no monitor. And I speak specifically of Hewlett-Packard and of uh, Parker Drilling. Uh, Parker Drilling had C-suite involvement in the um, bribery scheme. Hewlett-Packard had a multi-country uh, literally culture of corruption where there were systemic internal control failures. Uh, n both companies received less than the uh, minimum sentencing uh, guideline suggested penalty. And neither company uh, was required to have a monitor. Uh, I do believe I understand the reason Parker Drilling did was because they hired uh, Dan Chapman, uh, who was given uh, uh, credit by the government for putting in literally a gold standard uh, compliance program at the company. Um, I don't know the answer at Hewlett Packard because they really didn't go out on the speaker circuit and talk about what they'd done. Nevertheless, uh, where there were examples prior to the FCPA pilot program of companies that had engaged in serious FCPA violations, but were able to make a comeback during the pendency of the investigation. And in the case of both Parker Drilling and Hewlett Packard, there was not self-reporting. Now, uh, I do agree with uh, not only Sally Malloy's remarks, but your analysis of um, the trust issue. Because if you talk to uh, anyone who's worked in the FCPA unit um, and then is now in private practice, they say that trust with the regulators, trust with the prosecutors, trust with the Department of Justice is really a key uh, mechanism for you to negotiate uh, a successful uh, resolution. And part of that trust is, can you or will you remediate and can you be trusted to remediate on your own going forward? In the past, I think we've seen situations where the government was not fully convinced that the company would maintain its remediation program after the DPA was signed. And so we saw monitorships. But if a company has um, aggressively remediated and met the other requirements of the uh, new FCPA enforcement policy in terms of self-disclosure and extensive cooperation, that may uh, rise to a level of trust that does not need a uh, monitor. Uh, but even with that um, is the issue of recidivism. Uh, so last year we had three recidivists um, 
And uh, of those three, one, Halliburton did not, uh, was not required to have a monitor. Now, their settlement was not a criminal settlement under the Department of Justice. Uh, they got a declination from the DOJ. They did have sustain a uh, civil uh, uh, solution or resolution, rather, with the SEC. Uh, nevertheless, um, if you're going to be a recidivist, uh, that's one of the points that was brought up in this paper, that uh, that's going to be a very difficult conversation not to uh, require a monitor. But uh, actually, now that you explain that in the way that you did, I think um, not only is this a positive spin, Jay, but it's it's really a conversation that people like affiliated monitors should have with their clients and potential clients, because it is a way to show not only a proactive approach, but also to engender trust with uh, the government, because opening up your kimono is uh, it's a scary thing to do, but it's something that the government's going to expect. And if you've opened up that kimono to a true third party, a true disinterested outsider, such as affiliated monitors, I think it speaks to a level of commitment uh, by your organization. So um, something like this, uh, comments like these, if the Department of Justice is going to uh, move in this direction uh, with no monitorship, um, then uh, I think it's going to become even more important and put more pressure on companies to be more proactive in their remediation and opening up those kimonos to others uh, and showing that to the government. Couldn't agree more. So, uh, do you want to uh, you want to tell us what you're up to, or take us home with the um, with the highlights from the uh, the Trace uh, Global Enforcement Report? Well, let's just uh, highlight uh, that because uh, it's in the show notes. So, um, okay. Trace came out with a global uh, enforcement report, and some of the highlights include the number of U.S. enforcement actions obviously dropped last year from the 2016 record-setting pace, uh, but that's not the be-all and end-all. European companies continue to predominate U.S. investigations, notably in the U.K., Switzerland, Germany, and the Netherlands, uh, in investigating prosecutions. Uh, and, and prosecutions, um, the DOJ and SEC are maintaining roughly the same number of cases in the pipeline, uh, which I think is an important indicia of where we'll come out at the end of the day. The, uh, there's an increase in focus of payments to European officials. Um, Brazil still is the largest company, uh, excuse me, country with uh, the number of enforcement actions from last year, but a decrease in China. And then finally, and good news for all of us in Houston, the financial industry has finally overtaken the extractive industry in the number of open FCPA investigations. Uh, but uh, oil and gas continues to face the brunt of uh, literally international enforcement. So some interesting highlights. Uh, we commend the uh, Trace Report to you. A uh, couple of announcements I'd like to make, Jay. Um, uh, the first is um, my new book, The Complete Compliance Handbook, is still available for presale. You can check it out on my website. But also our good friend and colleague, Jonathan Armstrong, will be uh, in Houston on April 10th to put on a half-day GDPR workshop. It's sponsored by uh, the Greater Houston Business and Ethics Roundtable. And uh, you can register on that site, which is uh, ghber.org, and that will be in the show notes. Uh, and then finally, Jay, I'm extraordinarily pleased to announce uh, a new podcast, which I'm premiering on Tuesday, 
excuse me, innovation and compliance. One of the things that I've been interested in over the years is how the compliance profession has evolved. You've certainly been part of that as both a uh, product provider and now a service provider. Uh, But I'd be really interested in that. Uh, Vince Walden from Ernst & Young is my first guest, and we talk about the use of uh, the digital twin and digital information. It's going to be a great podcast series. I've got, I think, six in the can uh, so I hope you will tune in Tuesday. It goes up um, on multiple channels, uh, iTunes, Libsyn, the FCPA Compliance Report, uh, and JD Supra <coughs> all Tuesday. Uh, we've got uh, great feedback. We have uh, 50 people who are part of an advisory team uh, that are going to get the uh, episode um, on Sunday. If you'd want to be a part of that, uh, you can uh, send me an email and I'll get you in on that and get uh, early information in addition to a uh, white paper I put out about in innovation and compliance. So I'm very excited about that. Very excited to have Vince Walden uh, as my first guest, uh, a great uh, a great friend of compliance, practitioner of compliance, and very innovative in some of the compliance solution that he's been involved with at uh, EY. So I don't know if you can believe everything you read on LinkedIn, but I saw that uh, Jonathan um, Armstrong may be wearing a 10-gallon hat to the Gerber event. Do you have any confirmation on that? I can neither admit nor deny uh, that such event occurred, if in, if in fact it did occur, uh, nor would I be at liberty to admit or deny if such event occurred, if in fact it did occur. And further, I will not be having a Damascene conversion on such query. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, regards to Jonathan, and I think uh, most of the SCCE crew are going to be getting together in Frankfurt in the coming week to start the European Compliance and Ethics Institute. So if you're in that part of the world and can make it to Frankfurt, it's always good to get the tribe back together. So on behalf of Tom Fox, the compliance evangelist, and myself, Jay Rose, and Mr. Monitor, we'd like to thank you for joining us for this week in FCPA, episode number four, the March Madness edition. Thanks a lot and have a great week. This is Tom Fox again. I'd like to thank you for listening to this episode of This Week in FCPA. If you have any questions, you can email me at tfox at tfoxlaw.com. You can email Jay at jrosen at affiliatedmonitors.com. I would greatly appreciate it if you would rate our podcast if you have listened to it on iTunes, as it would help on our rankings and help get the word out even further about the only weekly wrap-up in compliance and ethics. Don't forget my new podcast, Innovation and Compliance, which will roll out on Tuesday. If you enjoy this podcast, I'm sure you will enjoy that one. This is Tom Fox. Thank you for listening to This Week in FCPA, and I hope you'll join us again next week where we take a look at some of the week's top compliance and ethics stories. Thanks again. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.